This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up. So Prince Harry is a living legend of aviation. Why not, says Marina Hyde. Bernie Sanders on what happens if Trump wins and how to stop him. And mushroom macchiato, anyone? Are the new boosted coffees worth the hype? This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now, former military top brass are up in arms as Prince Harry follows in the footsteps of Harrison Ford and John Travolta as a living legend of aviation. It turns out, observes Marina Hyde, Prince Harry is in good company. One crash landed, and the other has a Boeing 707 in his driveway. Read by Evelyn Miller. Lovers of full combat Prince Harry rows will be positively looping the loop over the latest one, which has drawn former British military chiefs out of the woodwork to fume about the prospect of the Duke of Sussex being named... A living legend of aviation on Friday in Beverly Hills. Prince Harry flew as an army helicopter co-pilot and gunner while serving in Afghanistan. But some people just will not countenance the idea that he's a millennial Douglas Bader. He is not a living legend of aviation, thundered erstwhile First Sea Lord and Chief of the Naval Staff, Admiral Lord West. To suggest he is, is pathetic. It makes the whole thing seem a bit of a nonsense if they're willing to pick someone like Prince Harry. Sorry, Lord West, but I don't see it. A living legends of aviation ceremony presented by John Travolta, who has not just a Gulfstream, but a private Boeing 707 quite literally parked in his Floridian driveway. Induction into a Hall of Fame where fellow living legends of aviation include Morgan Freeman, only got his pilot licence at 65, and Harrison Ford, once crash-landed his plane on a Californian golf course. Fellow 2024 honorees including Jeff Bezos' fiancée Lauren Sanchez, 
Again, I'm really going to need his lordship to elaborate his policy position on this one. How can the whole thing seem a bit of a nonsense? And that's even before you consider the fact that the awards host, Travolta, famously once danced at the White House with the award recipient's mother, and retrospectively called this probably the best moment of the 80s. A look at John's film credits for the decade will certainly confirm this. These are dark times, darker even than the Travolta 80s, and the seriousness of the Prince Harry Gala award night situation should be underscored by the fact that Lord West has ventured only twice into commenting this past week. Once on the need for strikes on Houthi targets after an escalation of attacks on cargo ships in the Red Sea, and once on the forthcoming outrage at the Beverly Hilton. Cocktails 6pm, dinner 7pm, awards 8pm. Meanwhile, an online petition, perhaps the most ineffectual form of interjection in modern public life, even including words spoken into the void on talk TV, states the decision to honour the Duke of Sussex is a travesty on the part of such an esteemed organisation. And yet is it esteemed? Who has really ever heard of this autoparodic body until now? Which was presumably part of the reason they pulled Prince Harry's name out of the free publicity hat in the first place. It's amazing, really, how much of the wider esteem business is taken up with confected ceremonies such as the one due to take place in Beverly Hills, and consequently, how suspect the entire industry of conferring esteem is. Almost all awards honouring famous people for non-professional reasons are like this, and a whole host of the ones honouring them for professional reasons are like this too. Meanwhile, absolutely all award ceremonies are revenue-gathering schemes. A VIP table at the Legends of Aviation Awards will set you back up to $30,000, Therefore, all awards that by their very existence emphasise the essentially silly nature of such things are surely to be welcomed, even by former First Sea Lords slash current Edgelords, furious at having to rent out yet another quote. Take the humanitarian award industry. The sheer cost of the many humanitarian award ceremonies staged every year could lift countless people out of poverty, and the notion that they are vague hand-wave, an effective marketing spend, is another claim that never gets seriously interrogated. They are so ubiquitous as to amount to little more than participation medals for celebrities. Paris Hilton has two humanitarian awards. Angelina Jolie has absolutely masses of the things. She does a lot for charity, of course. And I suppose the only people on this earth who do more for charity, really, are the millions of people who work for charities every day. But they are not famous, and consequently never get their gala night. Tony Blair seemed to receive some confected award or other every ten minutes in the years after he left office, with one Global Legacy Award from Save the Children causing particular dismay among those still observing the arguably suboptimal fallout of his Global Legacy. But Blair duly showed up to some glitzy ceremony in New York to receive the thing, 
with my favourite hilarious detail from the news reports about the event being the fact that it was attended by Ben Affleck and Lassie. I don't think they came together. But there genuinely is a picture of a rough collie posing for the photographers on the red carpet. Whether Prince Harry will even show up in person to be made an hashtag absolute ledge of aviation is unclear at the time of writing. It is even less clear, come to that, whether the latest iteration of Lassie will herself make an appearance at this latest stop on the busy awards and honours circuit. If she does find time in her schedule, though, her duties must surely include addressing what now promises to be an absolute army of reporters serried outside. In her time-worn style of raising the alarm, she must simply approach their cameras and bark an extended warning against taking any of these sort of events remotely seriously. That was If Harrison Ford and John Travolta can be crowned living legends of aviation, why not Prince Harry? By Marina Hyde. Read by Evelyn Miller. Next... He's the left-wing outsider who nearly became the Democrats' candidate for president, twice. As Bernie Sanders' position on the Israel-Gaza war threatens to upset his support, the veteran senator tells Ed Pilkington that he's tired, but determined to fight the return of that bitter, humiliated man. Read by James Sobel Kelly. Bernie Sanders sweeps into his state office in Burlington, Vermont itching to get on with our interview. When I try to break the ice by asking the U.S. Senator how he is, he replies gruffly, good, and motions with his outstretched hand for our conversation to begin. It's a Saturday, and Sanders is dressed in his casual weekend uniform of cream chinos, blue shirt, and sweater, no tie. I've been hoping the day would be so cold and crisp in Burlington the idyllic college town which has been his home since 1968, that he'd be wearing the mittens captured in a cult photo of Sanders huddled against biting winds at Joe Biden's 2021 inauguration. The ones that launched a quadrillion memes and sent the U.S. senator hurtling into the cyber stratosphere. I couldn't believe it. All I was doing was trying to keep warm, he says, before breaking the bad news. Not only is he not wearing the mittens, I don't even know where they are, he says. Sanders always seems to be in a hurry. Like Alice's white rabbit, he's forever racing against the clock in his battle with the billionaires and corporate interests. He is the most unlikely harbinger of change. A politician who drove young voters wild with Bernie mania in 2016, when he was already 74. A man with none of the usual TV good looks and smooth talking attached to presidential candidates, but one who, by being absolutely himself still turned out to be hugely charismatic. In the past decade, he's done more than almost anyone to change the political lens in the U.S., bringing income inequality, poverty, and what he calls uber-capitalism into focus. And yet before that, he was a virtual unknown. In his 20s and 30s, Sanders worked lean years as a carpenter and freelance writer, alongside campaigning for the local Socialist Party, Liberty Union. It took him 10 years to learn how to win an election, which he did in 1981, age 39, by all of 10 votes, to become Burlington's mayor 
before taking Vermont's only congressional seat a decade later. He remained for the next quarter of a century largely in the shadows, a rare overtly left-wing voice in Congress, diligently plowing his self-styled democratic socialist furrow. And then, in 2016, he suddenly burst onto the national stage in his challenge against Hillary Clinton for the Democratic presidential nomination, attracting an army of young voters chanting, Feel the burn. Eight years on, he's still in a rush. But he comes across as more somber now, more edgily reflective. He imbues that mood in an afterward to the new paperback edition of his book, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, in which he writes that, though he would like to be optimistic about the future, he cannot. He invokes his seven grandchildren and laments that they will inherit a world that faces more urgent and undeniable crises than at any time in modern history. I ask him to spell that out. We're looking at a series of extraordinary crises. Climate. It's up in the air whether the world community will make the cuts in carbon emissions to provide a habitable planet for our grandchildren. The growth of oligarchy. A small number of extremely wealthy people control the economic and political life of billions. Democracy under severe threat from those capitalizing on people's fears. Not long ago, Sanders used to be ridiculed for such disquieting rhetoric. He was denounced as a firebrand, a rabble-rouser. No one's laughing at him now. Two wars, a humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Gaza, vast swathes of North America literally burning, inequality between rich and poor at mind-sizzling levels. As the New Yorker memorably noted, reality has endorsed Bernie Sanders. Is that how it seems to him, that all his fears are coming home to roost? It's not a great feeling, he says. I'm extremely nervous about what is coming. Ah, yes. Donald Trump. Sanders has long had the measure of Trump. In 2016, when Trump said, I alone can fix it, as he accepted the Republican presidential nomination, Sanders commented, Is this guy running for president or dictator? Two months before the 2020 election, he predicted that a defeated Trump might not go peaceably. Another portent that was dramatically fulfilled. Now that the Iowa caucus has kicked off the 2024 primary season, Sanders is at it again. Except this time, he says, the stakes are much higher. Even for a politician who doesn't mince his words, his assessment of a Trump victory in November is sobering. It will be the end of democracy, he says. Functional democracy. It may not happen on day one, he says. Trump wouldn't be as obvious as to abolish elections. But he would steadily weaken democracy, making it harder for young people and people of color to vote, enervating political opposition, whipping up anger against minorities and immigrants. A second Trump presidency would be much more extreme than the first. He's made that clear, says Sanders. There's a lot of personal bitterness. He's a bitter man. Having gone through four indictments, humiliated, he's going to take it out on his enemies. We've got to explain to the American people what that means to them, what the collapse of American democracy will mean to all of us. 
He doesn't ascribe the rise of Trump solely to a lumpen mass of redneck working-class Americans, deplorables, to borrow a phrase. I do not believe that all of Trump's supporters are racist or sexist or homophobes. I think what's going on in this country is a belief that the government is failing ordinary Americans. Sanders' office sits in the main street of Burlington and is, like the man, minimalist and spare. There are posters from different stages in his political life, including an inevitable Feel the Burn placard and a photograph from Puerto Cabezas, Nicaragua, which Mayor Sanders twinned Burlington with during Ronald Reagan's Contra War against the left-wing Sandinistas. A third wall hanging says, In recognition of your support for fish hatcheries in the Lake Champlain Basin. He lives in a modest house, a little way from the center of town, with Jane O'Meara Sanders, whom he married in 1988, and to whom he dedicates It's Okay to Be Angry, calling her his wife, co-worker, and best buddy. He also dedicates the book to his brother, Larry Sanders, who lives in Oxford, England, and is a former Green Party councillor, and to his four children, one by his first wife, Deborah Schilling Messing, and three stepchildren, who are Jane's but whom he considers his own, as well as to those seven grandchildren. He has built his political persona around reciting startling and infuriating statistics, and my encounter with him is no exception. With his index finger jabbing, as though pointing to an invisible crowd, he tells me that before the pandemic, three multi-billionaires, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, and Warren Buffett, owned more between them than the combined wealth of the 160 million Americans who make up the bottom half of society. Three people. That's unbelievable, incredible, he says. Wages, accounting for inflation, are lower today for working people than they were 50 years ago. Think about that. My grandchildren will have a lower standard of living than my generation. In this scheme of things, Trump is merely doing what demagogues are doing the world over, capitalizing on the anxieties and struggles of the people. Trump comes along and says, I'll be your strong guy. I'll deal with all your anxieties, immigration, transgender issues, race. I'll be there for you, says Sanders. Uncomfortably for his colleagues in Congress, Sanders reserves much of his sharpest criticism for the Democratic Party. Officially, he has sat as an independent since entering the House of Representatives in 1991, but he votes as a Democrat in Congress and ran both his presidential campaigns as one. Yet he denounces the party establishment as a consultant-driven, ad-producing election machine. It is beyond pathetic, he writes in the book, that a phony corporate hack like Trump should be able to present himself as the champion of the working classes, while the Democratic Party stands back and cedes territory to him. He caricatures the Democratic promise to voters as... We're pretty bad, but Republicans are worse, and warns that is simply not good enough. Which brings us to Biden. Sanders describes Biden, whom he's known since he was elected to the Senate in 2007, as a likable and decent man. But he has a clear message for the sitting president. Step up to the plate, or the future of the United States, of the world, is in peril. The challenge we face 
is to be able to show people that government in a democratic society can address their very serious needs. If we do that, we defeat Trump. If we do not, then we are the Weimar Republic of the early 1930s. Sanders says he's in touch with the White House, exhorting them to be more vocal in their appeals to working Americans. He has got to say, in my view, that if he is re-elected, within two months he will bring about the sweeping changes the working class of this country desperately need. So are they listening? As is always the case, not as strongly as I would like. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this article in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, back to Bernie Sanders. You can see why Sanders was enticed to move to Burlington as a 27-year-old, having been brought up in a Brooklyn tenement. The town, which is famous as the birthplace of Ben & Jerry's ice cream, is flanked by Lake Champlain on one side and the Green Mountains on the other, its steeples and cobbled streets dusted with snow. It feels like an oasis of peace in a very disturbed world. Until it doesn't. On the 25th of November... Three 20-year-old Palestinian-American students, best friends from Ramallah in the West Bank, who'd come to the U.S. to pursue a safe university education, were shot in a Burlington street by a hate-filled stranger. One of the men, Hisham Awatani, is paralyzed from the chest down. The incident has left Sanders shaken. In a speech to the Senate five days after the shooting, he stepped out of the limited emotional range he usually displays in public, Anger, outrage, disgust, and sounded palpably upset. He sounds upset now. Less than a mile away from where we are right now, three really bright young people were walking down the street, talking some Arabic. Words fail to describe the ugliness and the horror of this in this city, he says. The Israel-Hamas war that erupted on the 7th of October with the Hamas massacre, has troubled Sanders like few other events in his 40 years in politics. It's on my mind all of the time, he says. This is something I literally dream about. That's not surprising, given that he is both one of the most prominent Jews in the United States and a politician who puts human rights front and center. And this is profoundly personal for him. 
During his 2020 presidential campaign, he told a CNN town hall that there were two main factors behind his worldview. One was growing up in a cash-strapped Brooklyn family, supported by his father's job as a paint salesman. The other was being Jewish. Sanders recalls the visceral way he learned as a young child about the Holocaust. He lifts up the sleeve of his left arm and rubs his skin as he tells me, I remember going down a few blocks to the shopping area, and there were people working in the markets, and they had their concentration camp numbers tattooed on their arms. His father, Elias Ben Yehuda Sanders, emigrated from Poland to the U.S. in 1921. He was 17 and penniless, and fleeing anti-Semitic pogroms. Most of that side of Sanders' family remained in Poland and were almost entirely wiped out by the Nazis. A few years ago, Sanders went with his brother Larry to Swapnica, the Polish village where their father had been raised. There was a mound, and it was a mass grave of people slaughtered in the town, he says. So racism, wiping out people because of a different religion, that stayed with me my whole life. His deep personal understanding of the horrors human beings can inflict on each other helps explain the tightrope Sanders has been walking over the war. He's always stood firmly beside Israel as a safe haven for Jews, and has also spoken up over many years for the right of the Palestinians to live in peace. It's a classic two-state position. That has translated in the current crisis as Sanders steadfastly defending the right of Israel to go after Hamas, which he calls a disgusting terrorist organization. At the same time, he's become steadily more damning of Benjamin Netanyahu, and the Israeli military's mass atrocity in Gaza. He has also grown increasingly disapproving of Biden's staunch support for the Israeli war effort, condemning what he calls U.S. complicity in destroying the lives of innocent men, women, and children in Gaza. He's trying to block billions of dollars of extra U.S. military aid to Israel and is demanding a Senate investigation into how U.S. arms are used in Gaza. I ask him whether he feels a special distress watching a country he has always supported as a post-Holocaust shelter for Jews inflict such indiscriminate bombing on others. The answer is yes, he says. If there are any people that have suffered, it's Jewish people. And they should not be imposing that type of suffering on Palestinian children. Killing children is not the solution. To say the dual position Sanders is attempting to hold is uncomfortable, would be a gross understatement. He has come under fire from pro-Israeli Democrats and Republicans, who accuse him of betraying America's great ally by failing to offer Netanyahu unconditional support. On his own progressive side, his refusal to countenance a permanent ceasefire, which he fears would merely embolden Hamas to renew its attacks with the aim of destroying Israel, has also landed him in hot water. More than 400 of his former staffers signed an open letter imploring him to shift his position. One of them, his 2020 campaign spokesperson, Brianna Joy Gray, tweeted, Biggest political disappointment of our generation, in response to an interview in which Sanders explained his view. There has also been fallout among young Americans, whom Sanders has long cultivated as the sweet spot of his base. Young voters drawn towards his no-nonsense takedown of the ultra-rich, 
are at the core of his 15.2 million following on X, formerly known as Twitter. Yet amid the Gaza crisis, polls show a stark generational divide, with young, progressive Americans coalescing around demands for a permanent ceasefire. I ask him, does he fear that his movement of youthful supporters could be starting to splinter? He clearly doesn't want to go there. I think, at the end of the day, we'll be all right, is all he'll say. Is Sanders swimming against the tide of an increasingly polarized and social media-driven world? I'm trying to do my best, he concedes, a little mournfully, within the complexities. When Sanders went up against Hillary Clinton in the 2016 Democratic primary, those who were paying attention could feel the tectonic plates of U.S. politics shifting. An insurgent campaign focused around inequality and corporate greed was giving a figurehead of the Democratic establishment a run for her money. Not that there were many paying attention. Sanders clearly still feels riled by how marginalized he was in the 2016 race. While his gargantuan crowds chanted, Feel the burn, pundits derided the free stuff he promoted, such as decent housing and health care for all with the New York Times chiding that it would add $3 trillion a year to government spending. Many media outlets largely ignored him. Even those dismissive of him had to recognize that he had become a phenomenon. By the end of the primaries, he'd won 22 states and more than 13 million votes. Though he lost, he gained a universe, an army of young, progressive, impassioned Americans, fluent and Bernie Ease. Oh, and he also acquired a picture-perfect impersonation of himself on Saturday Night Live, courtesy of Larry David. The Curb Your Enthusiasm star was not only the spitting image of his subject, but he got Bernie's arms-flailing stump speech and legendary crotchetiness to a T, and as a fellow Brooklyn Jew, spoke his language. Huge! The two men appeared together on SNL just before the 2016 New Hampshire primary, and a few months later were revealed by genealogists to be distant cousins. The shorthand often used for the uprising Sanders catalyzed is the squad, the team of progressive Congress members around Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that emerged in the wake of 2016. Sanders writes in his book that the squad were a breath of fresh air, but to me, he insists, the sea change went even deeper. When I was elected to the House in 1990, there were five members of the Progressive Caucus. Today, there are well over a hundred. It is far more powerful and progressive than back then. Could there one day soon be a President AOC, not just a female president, but a progressive one? Sanders squirms a little, saying he doesn't want to play the name game. But then he says, absolutely, absolutely. The possibility exists, of course. For all his talk of revolution, for all his tax-the-rich bills and declarations of radical populism, a large part of the Sanders creed is nothing more nor less than an appeal for the basic fundamentals of life. Health, housing, a living wage, education, that are taken for granted by all other developed nations. He devotes an entire section of It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism to Finland, which is hardly a hotbed of revolution. Look at it that way, 
And it's not Bernie who's the extreme radical. It's the far-right march of the Republican Party. Which brings us back to Biden, the threat of Trump, and the ominous ten months ahead. Sanders has plenty of nice things to say about Biden. In the book, he praises the president's 2020 campaign platform, saying that if it had all been put into effect, he would have been the most progressive president since Franklin D. Roosevelt. The compliment is, in part, self-serving. Sanders credits himself with having pushed Biden further to the left in the run-up to the election. He also applauds Biden's decision to join a picket line during the recent auto workers' strike, the first sitting president in history to do so. But as we enter election year, he warns that there is much more to be done. Look, the president has put a historic amount of money into transforming our energy system away from fossil fuels, but the fossil fuel industry keeps on its merry way, and we're not stopping them. The president is making efforts to take on the greed of the pharmaceutical industry, but it's nowhere near enough. He tried to lower student debt. It was reversed by the Supreme Court, he says. Sanders suddenly leans towards me and gives me a blast of rhetoric that is almost overpowering. The president has got to acknowledge the enormous crises facing people's lives. You can't fool them. If I say to you all the great things I've done for you, you will come back and say, well... I can't afford health care. I can't send my kid to college. Americans are feeling anxious right now, and we've got to address that. Is there a danger many young Americans and voters of color who formed a critical part of the coalition that elected Biden and defeated Trump in 2020 will look at the rematch of the same two candidates in November, decide they aren't inspired by either, and stay at home? There's no question. The polling is clear. Given the choice between Biden and Trump, there are a lot of people saying, thank you, but no thank you. It's a strikingly different analysis from that offered by much of the commentariat, which has lasered in on Biden's age, which is interesting because Sanders, at 82, is a year older than the president, yet rarely gets labeled as old. If anything, he comes across as ageless, as crotchety and energetic as he's ever been. I ask what he thinks of the focus on Biden's age, remarking that it's not just Biden. Mitch McConnell, Republican leader in the Senate, is the same age as Biden at 81 and has caused some alarm by freezing mid-speech. Is it time to drop to a younger cadre of political leaders? It's a nice phrase, a new generation of leadership, and yes, most of the strongest progressives are young people. But you've got young Republicans who are among the most right-wing people in the country. So it's not age. It's what the individual stands for. And what about him? On one level, with the world going up in smoke, his brand of urgent analysis is needed more than ever today. But he's been at it a long time. He had a heart attack during the 2020 campaign and must be feeling the weight of it all. He's surprisingly candid. I am tired. I've been doing this since I was elected mayor of this city in 1981. What I see in Washington is so dishonest. There's no debate on the crumbling healthcare system, no debate on climate, no debate on wealth inequality, none. That's distressing. And what we're seeing in the world is distressing. And being 82, this is painful stuff. Just when I think Sanders might be about to announce his retirement, 
He sits back, rallies himself, and says, Let's get back to my grandchildren and the future generation. It's in my DNA. It's in the way I look at the world. You got to stand up and do the best you can. We don't have the moral right to simply walk away. You keep going, I suggest. You got to keep going. That was It Will Be the End of Democracy, Bernie Sanders on What Happens If Trump Wins and How to Stop Him by Ed Pilkington, read by James Sobel Kelly. Finally, from chickpea to ginseng to olive oil, coffee menus are now full of weird and wonderful brews promising health benefits. But are they superfoods or just far-fetched fads? Rebecca Seal dives in to find out. Read by Evelyn Miller. A brain-enhancing coffee sounds tempting, doesn't it? What's not to like about a daily shot containing not just the caffeine that 75% of us rely on to get going most days, but also a sprinkling of adaptogenic plants or fungal extracts? Adaptogens are substances found in plants and fungi and are big business. Theoretically, they have brain-boosting, focus-enhancing, mood-improving, stress-reducing properties. They are widely sold as supplements, but one of the fastest-growing new markets is for adaptogenic, or functional, coffee. So is this the end of the plain old flat white? Will your next espresso come with stamina-increasing ginseng or mineral-rich roasted chickpeas? Do they live up to the marketing hype? And perhaps most importantly, is coffee laced with cordyceps, mushrooms even drinkable? Before you rush out to buy a bag, you should know that despite the big claims, clinical evidence for many adaptogens is pretty scant, although there is plenty of research on the go. And while many have been safely and effectively used in traditional medicine for thousands of years, what humans haven't ever done before is take them every day, with caffeine, in itself a psychostimulant, sometimes used in medicines, and maybe even a dash of CBD. For those who don't want caffeine, there are decaf versions, as well as new coffee alternatives made with a range of roasted and ground stone fruit and legumes. Rishi mushrooms, for example, have long been used in Asian medical practices as an immune response stimulator, while maca is a Peruvian root vegetable used by Andean people for chest infections, and which may also enhance sex drive. Ashwagandha is a shrub used in Ayurvedic medicine to treat stress and anxiety and increase energy levels. Cordyceps is a parasitic zombie fungus that infects, lives on and kills adult insects and larvae. Mmm, delicious. Used in traditional Chinese medicine for more than two millennia to help with energy and stamina. But until now... No one has stirred a teaspoon of any of them into hot water every morning. Adaptogens were first named in the 1950s by Soviet toxologist Nikolai Lazarev, who noticed that consuming certain plants seemed to increase human resistance to, and tolerance of, physical, biological or psychological stress, without themselves causing harm. Initially, only a few plants, all used in traditional medicine systems, 
were considered adaptogenic. Siberian ginseng and Rhodiella rosea, a flowering plant from the Arctic regions, were among the first to be studied. Both are thought to increase energy and stamina. But today, dozens of plant extracts and supplements are thought of as adaptogenic, including a wide range of functional mushrooms, even though they don't necessarily meet the pharmacological definition and haven't been studied much, if at all. Your social media feeds may be full of adverts making a noise about the brain-enhancing benefits of lion's mane mushroom coffee, but research into this strange, hairy-looking fungus has so far mainly looked at animals, or cells in vitro, rather than humans, a small, randomised, controlled study looking into lion's mane as a treatment for Parkinson's disease will finish soon. That doesn't mean that all adaptogens definitely don't work, but it does mean we don't yet know much about dosages, interactivity or long-term effects. Professor Michael Heinrich is a pharmaceutical biologist with a special interest in medicinal plants and is part of the Pharmacognosy natural drugs, and phytotherapy research group at the UCL School of Pharmacy in London. He believes that at present, many of the claims made for adaptogenic or functional plants cannot be substantiated. The worry I have is that adaptogens are becoming the new antioxidants, a catch-all marketing phrase. I've seen claims that fungi can relieve anxiety, prevent wrinkle formation, stabilise blood pressure and ease hot flushes. This is just completely unacceptable. These are very strong medical claims. I think there are some useful things to be learned from a proper use of adaptogens, but for most of these, the clinical evidence is somewhere between nil and extremely limited. Although interactivity between adaptogens and other medicines taken at the same time may be a concern, just as with any pharmacological item, Heinrich also questions whether products such as enhanced coffees contain high enough doses of adaptogens to do anything much. He took part in a global study of ginkgo biloba supplements, which revealed that many products either didn't contain what they claimed, or contained other, potentially dangerous, ingredients. With mushrooms, we also need to remember that they can accumulate heavy metals, Plants grown in soils rich in or polluted by metals such as lead or cadmium can be harmful to human health, and we don't know how they're grown, on what soil or medium, where the water to irrigate is from. To my knowledge, that has not been looked at systematically. Heinrich would also like to see certain adaptogens given higher pharmacological status and be treated more cautiously as medicines rather than foods. I think ashwagandha, for example, should be much more stringently regulated as a medicine. If the dose is quite low, it's unlikely to do anything. But there are interaction risks. He also notes that although adaptogens are marketed as though they'll help you out immediately, like caffeine, by definition, adaptogens have a long-term, slow and modulating effect. My week of trialling them certainly didn't make me feel any different. Adaptogenic coffee isn't cheap, either. A 200-gram jar of ordinary instant coffee, as bought by 80% of UK households, 
We'll make about 100 cups of coffee at less than 10 pence each. And a home-brewed ground coffee works out at 30 to 45 pence, whereas adaptogenic coffee can cost more than a pound a serving. If you don't fancy enhanced coffee, you could try one of the many other caffeine-free coffee alternatives that are vying to push turmeric lattes out of the limelight. Chickpea coffee is made from blackened roasted chickpeas, which are then ground and brewed just like coffee. Like chicory or barley coffee, this is not a novel invention, having been drunk by communities in India and Turkey for generations. It can be made at home or bought online. Look for new US brand Alt Health, which claims its cuppa is rich in fibre, potassium, iron, magnesium, selenium and calcium. Or there's Mayanut coffee from Costa Rica, sold by Blue Zones Nicoya, a company set up by longevity researcher Dan Butner. It's made with the highly nutritious Maya fruit, also known as breadnut, and flavoured with spices. Starbucks recently launched Oliato, a range of olive oil-enriched coffees. They're not unlike Bulletproof Coffee, a high-fat, carb-free coffee favoured by ketogenic diet followers, which is made without milk but with both butter and oil. The Oliato range is either served with olive oil-infused oat milk or black, with a drizzle of olive oil added to the cup. Howard Schultz, founder of Starbucks is an olive oil superfan and started drinking a spoonful every day in 2022 at the age of 69, having heard that long-living Sicilians do the same. Although the grassy flavour the oil adds isn't unpleasant, exactly, it's impossible to ignore that the added fat makes the coffee taste greasy. An oleato latte feels even richer than a pumpkin-spiced venti. Or how about a lavender latte? Perhaps more Instagrammable than palatable, this coffee is made by whisking dark purple ready-made lavender syrup into milk and then layering it over espresso, which looks, and tastes, like coffee mixed with bubble bath. I'll stick to my flat whites, thank you. That was Make Mine a Mushroom Macchiato. Are the new boosted coffees worth the hype? By Rebecca Seal. Read by Evelyn Miller. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Evelyn Miller and James Sobel Kelly and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts.
With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.